Hi everyone, it's a joy to speak to you today. I want to ask you a question. What is a difficult decision you've had to make recently? One of the most interesting things about our humanity is that in being made in the image of God, God has given us the ability to make decisions about our lives to respond to what happens to us. It's been estimated that the average adult makes 35,000 conscious decisions every day. And every now and then, we come across decisions that require us to ask ourselves a difficult question. And I've made that question the title of my message to you today. Should I stay or should I go? I'm convinced that this is a question that we ask ourselves in varying forms and ways throughout our lives. Right now, you may be experiencing some kind of resistance or a setback in your life. And this question can take the shape of that perennial tension that we all have sometimes, whether to quit or whether to endure. But you may also be in a place of relative comfort right now. And still, you could be asking, should I stay here or should I go on into something different? The question, should I stay or should I go, is a question that we will keep asking throughout our lives because we are always on a journey somewhere. And because for as long as we live, we're subject to decisions beyond our pay grade, situations beyond our control, problems beyond our capability, and people beyond our patience. When you were younger, this question might have come in the form of deciding on whether to stay in your friendship circle or to leave it. Maybe then you started dating as you got older and you soon wondered, should I stay in this relationship or step away from it? When you started working, this question came with that difficult boss or that unhealthy working culture or a terrible working set of hours. And soon you asked, should I stay here or should I leave for another job? In a recent study on jobs, up to 73% of current workers actively think about leaving their jobs. Perhaps you wish you could quit, but you're feeling stuck right now. So what can the Bible and our faith teach us about navigating this question? I want to share with you today a simple framework of how we can think and pray through what to do when we feel stuck. You see, in a situation of challenge or change, we can so often feel like there are too many options to choose from, too much complexity to cope with. But actually, there are only three options really that we can respond with. And each of these responses corresponds to the different journeys that God took his people through in the Bible. The Exodus, the wilderness, and the exile. In these three meta-narratives of these journeys, we learn something of how God shapes us and grows us in moments when we ask this question, should I stay or should I go? So are you ready? Let's take a walk. The first major journey that the Hebrew people took in the Bible is the Exodus. And the Exodus is a journey from slavery into freedom. This is, if you like, one of the pathways and options that you can take in times of change. Change location. That's what the Exodus represents. In Exodus 20 verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Around the 13th century BC, the Hebrew people were residents of the great nation of Egypt. It was at first a place of flourishing, but eventually it became a place of oppression and slavery. God gave Moses a call to lead his people into a new location, into the promised land of Canaan. In Exodus 3 verse 7, we read these words. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land 
into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And in verse 10, it says, Now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I wonder if you resonate with the plight of these people. You may not be experiencing physical slavery right now, but you may be emotionally stuck or mentally bound. You see, slavery is the place of being trapped and dehumanized, a loss of freedom. And in the story of the Exodus, God leads his people to change location. But here's the lesson of the Exodus. Freedom doesn't come freely. It's a costly gift, bought at a price, met often with resistance. And it's often our fear that holds us back. But God calls us to face our fears before we find true freedom. And Moses and the people decide to obey the Lord. So they step into a new location and God ultimately delivers his people. This would ultimately foreshadow what Christ has done for us. We put our trust in him, accepting the gift of freedom, bought at a price of his life, sacrificed on the cross for us. In the story of the Exodus, God takes a trapped people and brings them into freedom. And this would be displayed at the parting of the Red Sea as the people of God escape and their enemies are defeated. I wonder today if, like the people in Exodus, you are longing for a new freedom. In Galatians 5 verse 1, Paul wrote, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And then he went on to say, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. My wife Jacinta, uh, she comes from a remote tribe of people called the Lunbawangs. And for many centuries, the Lunbawang people were a headhunting tribe. They were really, really good at recruitment of a different kind. These days, they just hunt for wild boars, though you still wouldn't want to mess with them. In the 1920s, a few young men from Australia made their way to the remote villages of Borneo to bring the Lunbawang the good news of Jesus. And for these young men in Australia, that was their exodus. In the story of their lives, they had reached a decision-making junction to stay at home or to leave to a strange and foreign place for a cause beyond their comforts. But this very decision changed the cause of the Lunbawang tribe and later, the Malaysian church. By the 1970s, the Highlanders of Borneo had become a predominantly Christian people. But there was still a kind of coasting in their faith. You know, the Lunbawangs were no longer hate hunters or alcoholics. Their lives were cleaned up, but there was still a stagnation in their lives. Their relationships were fractured. There was a kind of complacency that had crept in and God wanted to give them a new level of freedom. So God gave them a new assignment, a new mountain to climb, and quite literally. During this time, the Lunbawang people received a vision to build a church on the tallest peak of Sarawak, Mount Murut. You could call it the game of the impossible because for centuries, these people had avoided that mountain. It was for them the resting place of spirits and demons. The mountain was a place to avoid. It, was, it also didn't really make any logical sense. Why would you build a church on a mountain that people don't go to? But you know, sometimes God sends us into assignments that raise our courage and faith. And as we step out, we are transformed along the way. For the next few years, the Lunbawang people began to pray and prepare for this dream. And along the way, God would confirm in their hearts through signs and wonders that He was with them, that He would use them in ways that they would understand. And He would show them signs and wonders, stories that to our modern ears would seem so strange and yet would still be told today by first-hand witnesses who are still alive, like Jacinta's own grandfather. There would be stories of God sending fireballs into the sky during a 
night prayer meeting to remind them of his presence. On another occasion, on a hike to the mountain, the Lord spoke through one of the leaders that he was going to encourage the people through a miraculous sign. The leaders of the people put together some sand, some stones and some water. They cooked them together. And then miraculously, that turned into sugar, flour and oil. And the people had rice cakes from it and extra bags of them to show the others. Today, the church stands at the top of Mount Murud, where Christians from all over the world come to congregate at least every two years to pray. What happened in that remote mountain 50 years ago has given birth to thousands of churches today, a total transformation of society in Sarawak. You see, more than the signs and wonders, more than even a physical church there, God brings us on an exodus and it transforms us and gives us a new identity. The pattern of the exodus is always the same. In our lives, we will encounter difficulties, delays, and dead ends. Call them the shackles of bondage that hold us back from our God-given purpose. But as we decide to depend on God, putting our full faith in Him, sometimes beyond the limits of our own understanding, God sends us deliverance. So that's the first option you could take in facing that question, should I stay or should I go? Sometimes God calls us to go. This is often the option that seems scariest because it involves a journey into the unknown, a stepping away from the familiar. And God may be taking some of you today on a journey of exodus to change location. But I must tell you, this option to change location comes with three warnings. Firstly, bad decisions are often good, viable options applied at the wrong moments. Secondly, in a world of limitless options, quitting can be emotionally appealing then staying. And number three, in many fields of life, the good stuff often happens after the hard stuff. So wisdom, wisdom is to determine if taking the option to change location is a step of courage born from conviction or a step of escape born from fear. This is why Paul in writing to the Corinthian church warned, my dear friends, stand firm and don't be shaken. Always be busy working for the Lord. You know that everything you do for Him is worthwhile. So how do we make sure that taking that step of changing location isn't just a step of premature quitting? Paul said, know that everything you do for Him is worthwhile. Inspect what is worthwhile. I find this diagram quite a helpful way to make helpful decisions, especially when it comes to this question, how to know when to quit or to persevere. Firstly, ask two questions. Is it hard and worthwhile or is it hard and worthless? If it's hard and worthwhile, then lean into enduring. If it's hard and worthless long-term, lean into re-evaluating. Because when something is hard, you have to inspect its long-term worth. The first option is to change location. The second major journey that God takes His people through is a journey from a posture of blame to a posture of responsibility. This is option two. At the wilderness, God leads us to change ourselves. And we see this in the journey of the wilderness that God's people go on after their exodus. Now you may be thinking, okay, hold on. That's not a physical journey. It's not a move from place A to place B, but it's a shift of postures in the same place. Yes, that's exactly what it is. The wilderness represents another response that we can take in times of challenge. Change myself. 
You see, the hardest person to lead is often to lead myself. You know, leading myself is the most unseen, under-celebrated, challenging kind of leadership. It doesn't involve external movements. And yet, it is the single most important kind of leadership that ultimately affects all other forms of leadership. It was Rick Warren who said, what happens to you is far less important than what happens in you. Why? Because everything that happens to you is temporary in light of our eternal destiny in God. You see, what happens in you, on the other hand, is eternally significant. So what happened in the wilderness? Well, after the events of the Exodus and the miraculous escape of the people of God from Egypt, they reached a place called Kadesh Barnea which bordered on the promised land of Canaan. This is the promised land that they had been led by God to all this while. And 12 spies were sent to spy the land. Two came back with hopeful news and the rest of the 10 came back with a bad report. And unfortunately, the people believed the report of the 10 doubters and they lost heart and they began to blame their leaders. Let's take a look at Numbers chapter 14. And it says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 1, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taking this plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And for their complaining, for their posture of blame, God extends a journey that could have just taken 11 days into the promised land to 40 years around the wilderness as the people walked in the wilderness only to enter the promised land when they were ready to decades later. The wilderness is a frustrating place, but it's also a deeply forming one. Some of the most significant moments of our character development can take place when we are stuck in the same location. For it is exactly in the place of frustration that we experience a movement in our character. Sometimes we grow most when we're grounded. Why? Because our character isn't formed externally and accidentally, but internally and intentionally. This takes time. In Exodus 13 verse 18, we read, For about 40 years, God endured their conduct in the wilderness. And in some manuscripts, it says God cared for them in the wilderness. I wonder if you are in a wilderness right now and you feel like you're being punished when the lesson that God's taking you through is not from a, pl a place of spite, but a heart of care. You see, sometimes God delivers us from terrible situations to free us from them when He takes us to change location. But at other times, God de delivers us. He frees us from ourselves through terrible situations. This was their journey of internal transformation. I wonder if you, like me, often gravitate towards option one, change location, because option two, change myself, is much harder and much more frustrating to bear. It's often easier to walk away from the heat than to stay growing in the fire, which is why option two can feel like a process of dying and surrender. And I have to admit to you, I would much rather lose my routines then lose my control. About two years ago, I went for a nose operation. No, it wasn't the nose job that you may be thinking. Mine is still that flat button nose my Asian genes gave me. It was an operation for my sinuses to improve my breathing. 
Now, all my life, I had been delaying this option, right? I knew that it was going to be a good idea. I knew that I needed it, but I postponed it because of a very silly reason. I didn't like the idea of being sedated. And, you know, being made unconscious while the doctors opened up my nose, I really didn't like that thought. And if I'm honest, there was something about losing my sense of control that really put me off. So one week before the operation, the idea of being anesthetized became my constant fixation. I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And I began to even lose sleep about this. And poor Jacinta, she didn't really get it. So she said, you know, sedation, Abel, is fun. It's like the best sleep you could ever have. But saying that to me was like the most ironic thing you could say to someone losing his sleep about being put to sleep. Then came the day of the operation. And, you know, before I was wheeled into the operating theater, I gave Jacinta one last call and I said in the most dramatic way ever, tell Levi that I love him. It's been a good life. And there in the operating table, uh, the doctor who was in charge of sedating me took out the needle. He introduced himself and then he exclaimed, hey, are you Pastor Abel? I watch HTPB online. Lah. It's good to meet you. And I'm sure you're feeling good about this operation. And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> but before I knew it, he stuck the needle in and I had one of the best sleeps of my life. And moments later, I woke up to the same voice saying, praise God, it was a good operation. In a world of options, it's easy to choose the loss of familiarity over the loss of control. You know, if option one is about the courage to cross over from bondage to freedom, option two is the courage to stay and to surrender, to be a student of how God is refining and reforging our character in that place of our struggle. To not quit too prematurely because what happens after something hard is often something good. The path of the wilderness is not about going to somewhere new, but overcoming an old pattern in the very place of our struggle, which then makes us new. There's nothing that captures this more than the decision to follow Jesus. Perhaps you don't yet consider yourself a Christian. You can know today that following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean uprooting yourself and changing your jobs, your friends, your countries and lifestyle. You know, it could well mean this sometimes if changing location comes with the new freedom God has in mind for you. But more often than not, God saves us and calls us in the very place where He meets us. The wilderness is not where our location is changed, but where our hearts and our perspective are transformed. And that transformation starts first with the death of the old before the birth of the new. When I was growing up, one of the leaders that I really looked up to was a kind man called Minsa. Minsa was the one who brought me to church for youth groups. He would drive me every week. He would take an interest in my personal life. And over the years, his friendship became like a kind of anchoring weight to the shakiness and the volatility of teenage years that we all go through. I remember thinking that if Jesus was like a young Chinese Malaysian man who drives the Proton Wira, he would look and sound a bit like Minsa. So wise, so humble, and so kind. When Minsa was his, in his early 30s, he was sadly diagnosed with a rare kind of blood cancer. He beat it for the first round, but when it came back the second time, Minsa passed away. And it was one of the most heartbreaking moments of our community. Until today, we still don't know why such a good man had to die so young. But until then, I had never come across a death so bravely faced with hope and joy because he knew what was coming next. For the Christian, you see, death is only a doorway into everlasting life, a life where we will live with final and complete healing. 
And what I learned from Minster was some of God's best stories emerge not from a place of changing location, but from a change of perspective. On the day that Minster died, surrounded by his family, he muttered one last word before he passed away. And that last word on his lips was worship. He had lived his life as one big act of worship. You know, we will all one day experience physical death. It's the ultimate statistic. One in one die. But what if transformation involves a series of little deaths to self? What if, like our ultimate story, new life always emerges from death to our old ways? In Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. At this option of change myself, the decision is to decide to die to self. But why die? Because the transformation of our identity always requires a death to the ways of old before new life is found. In fact, it's often in the context of an unchanging external situation of challenge that God shapes and transforms us internally. What are our options when we're faced with immense difficulty? Option one is to change location. Option two is to change myself. And thirdly, option three is to change something. This is the major journey that the Hebrew people took in the Bible as a journey from self-preservation to love and service. Let's look at Jeremiah 29 verse 5. God said to the people of, who had just been brought into exile, a foreign land, into a place of oppression and subjugation, he told the Hebrew exiles, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You know, if option one is to go, to change location, and option two is to stay, to change myself, option three is to bless and to bring value. Change something. The exile represents a place where we can improve something about that location. Why? Because when God sends us into exile, He doesn't just rescue us in the exodus or refine us in the wilderness. He scatters us to be salt and light in the exile. You see, we are ambassadors of the Most High King. And ours is a kingdom that is different from the kingdoms of this world. You and I are commissioned by God to bring something of God's kingdom to the places of our lives. And this means that we are part of his mission. We're part of his mission to change the world with an expanding grace and goodness to a world desperate for love and peace. In his book, The Intentional Father, John Tyson outlines five definitive things. Every culture around the world teaches young boys on their journey to become men. And what are those five things? The first rule is this, life is hard, Number two, you're not important. Number three, your life is not about you. Number four, you're not in control. Number five, you're going to die. Now, it doesn't sound very happy clappy, does it? But consider the fact that every culture has through the ages taught these five rules to its young people in their journey toward adulthood, apart from modern culture. 
John Tyson goes on to say that this is why our modern lives are wrought with narcissism, anxiety, and toxic masculinity. The opposite of these rules is to choose what is easy over what is good, to make it all about myself, to live without a sense of consequence. But growth and maturity is about taking these five shifts. The shift from ease to difficulty. Life is hard. The shift from self to others. You're not important. The shift from entitlement to responsibility. Your life is not about you. The shift from control to surrender. You're not in control. And number five, the shift from the temporary to the permanent. You're going to die. In other words, our journey of maturity is a move from the external to the internal to the eternal. Option three. And the exile is where we take the shifts. You see, in the exile, we don't exactly change jobs. We don't change partners. We don't move locations and go to new countries or circumstances. But what we do change is what we bring to those places. We shift not only in our perspective, but in our agency to give. In option three, we decide to give. And we join in the work of God in delivering His people. Here, instead of a bent to blame, we choose to contribute. And this might look different for each one of us. It might look like choosing to stay on in this country to invest in your people. It might look like investing intentionally into your marriage so that it's not just a pragmatic arrangement, but a loving union that blesses others. It might be to be a good model of faithfulness to your family. When my mother was a university student, she decided to follow Jesus. And she had come from a non-Christian family with nine children. And hers was a really staunch Taoist family. When she told her parents that she had become a Christian, she was immediately exiled from her home. They thought that she had betrayed her own Chinese roots for accepting a Western religion. But my mom had not turned away from her culture. She had only turned away from her sins. The next few years of being a stranger to her own family were really painful, but they were also really formative years for her. She didn't waste any time. She grew in her faith. She went on mission trips. She applied herself in university and eventually she became a teacher. Decades later, she would, she would retire as an award-winning school principal with a track record of school transformation. But you know, before my mom became who she was in her 50s, she had to first make a decision about her faith in her 20s and confronted with the question, should I leave this all behind or stay faithful to this path? My mom actually was tempted to quit along the way. It was during the funeral of her father that my mom was tempted to walk away from her exile, to give up and assimilate into the predominant ways of her past. At the funeral, she was struck with grief. My mother was asked to hold a joystick and to say a prayer to her deceased father. She took it. She said, I'll do this out of love for my father. But as she raised it, something unusual happened. The embers from the joystick leapt onto the cloth of the altar and it caught fire very quickly. And her, her family quickly put it out. And then they said to her with a new realization, don't pray to our gods because your God is very powerful. And from that day, my mom's faith grew with a new strength. But so did her love for her family. Today, she's not the only Christian of her family. Others too have come to faith through her testimony. And in fact, I had the privilege of baptizing two of my aunts just a few months ago. You see, being a Christian doesn't make you turn away from your culture. It turns you outward to change culture. 
You are change agents, peacemakers, carriers of hope and peace to a world that needs God's love. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I wonder if you are in exile right now. Perhaps you're facing difficulty, but you are put there because you are sent on a peacekeeping mission. For the very people that you are with are the very people God loves and wants to reach, and He's using you. Today, we've talked about the three options you can take in the face of asking, should I stay or should I go? But how do we choose? You can choose by knowing that the Father loves you and is with you in your wilderness. You can choose by knowing that the Son died for you to bring you freedom in your exodus. You can choose by knowing that the Spirit is in you to strengthen you in your exile. Because whether it is a decision to change location, to change yourself, or to change something, God enables us in whatever season we're in. So we pray, come Holy Spirit. Let's pray for a moment right now. Wherever, wherever you are, in whatever decision, junction you're facing, as you consider one of these three options, let's pray to the Holy Spirit to fill us with His wisdom and guidance. So we, we say, come Holy Spirit, speak to us right now. We can trust you to make the right decisions ahead of us. And thank you that in all of these three stories, you are with the people of God. And you are right now with us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, Amen. <laughs>